The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're kind of been taking our time on it, uh, because in the last verse, it tells us that love is the greatest. So if it's the greatest, we need to have it give it some attention, and love is something that needs to be defined these days, and so far we looked at all the things that we looked at are all verbs, and love is not something that you just define, it's something actually you do, and love is only love when it acts, and that's the way it's presented in the Word of God, and we saw that Paul split love into all these different components, 15 different components, which we're looking at, uh, we call them properties, qualities, or characteristics, now, we already have studied several of these, and so let me just run through some of these, and, and we'll pick up where we left off last Sunday. So if you look at 1 Corinthians, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. It says, first love suffers long. And we talked about, we saw that it means love is patient, and when patience, it's referring to people. Love is always patient with people. It doesn't run out of patience, and the reason we lose our patience and we don't demonstrate love, a lot of times, if I had to choose one word, it is our pride. It's our pride. And in Ecclesiastes 7, 8, it says, patient spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Second, we looked at, if you go back and look at 13, 4, it says, love is kind. And folks, I am personally, and you should too, we are seeing less and less of this each day. People are just so unkind to each other for no apparent reason. I'm seeing it more and more with my own eyes. I mean, folks, you have a, and I'm talking about Christians here, you have a 70-year, 78-year-old man who probably has dementia walking up the stairs and he falls. Half the country's laughing. Half the country's laughing. Why are you laughing? Well, I just don't like him. You know who I'm talking about. You don't like him. Well, your like has nothing to do with it. Jesus never said, like your enemies, right? He said, love your enemies. You don't have to like the guy, but you have to love him. Isn't that what David did to Saul? I'm going to pause here for a second. David and Saul, remember this story? Let me show you something. Because... David said something that we should all pay attention to because David is the chosen king, right? God appointed him. But look at 1 Samuel 24, verses 4 through 7. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, and you may do to him as it seems good to you. You know, there's a Bob Dylan song. It's called Ain't Talking, and there's a line in there that says, if I ever catch my opponent sleeping, I'm going to slaughter them where they lie. Isn't that the carnal nature of humans? But he says, and David rose secretly and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Then in verse 5, now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. His heart even troubled him because he... He didn't kill him, but even because he cut off his robe. And then he goes to verse 6, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid 
that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. How is he anointed? Well, didn't David, didn't he make you king? Well, you see, God puts kings and he removes kings. And if it was Saul's time to go, it wasn't going to be by the hand of David. It's going to be by the hand of God. And in verse 7 says, So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. What sets us apart? What do we study? Remember the pattern of love? How would this world know that we are Christians? By acting unkindly? By our love. We sing that song, you know, that we would, the world will know we are Christians by our love, but we're the ones that are laughing. We're just so unkind. It reminds me of a story of a lady who died and went to heaven. And Saint, she meets St. Peter at the pearly gates. And St. Peter says, before I let you in, you have to spell a word. And she tells St. Peter, well, what word is that? She says, love. She says, oh, that's easy. L-O-V-E. He lets her in. A week later, St. Peter had to go to a meeting, and he asked her to watch the gate. And at this time, her husband died. And now he appears before the pearly gates, and he sees his wife there, and he tells her how much he missed her, and he's so happy to see her again in heaven. And she says, well, before I let you in, you have to spell a word. And he says, what word is that? She said, Czechoslovakia. People are just unkind for no apparent reason. People are just unkind. Bible all over the place tells us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. We don't have to like them, but you don't have to degrade them. It says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Give preference to one another. So be kind, you know. Anybody have watched Mr. Rogers? I did a little bit when we first moved to America. Three rules of success. Rule number one, be kind. Rule number two, be kind. Rule number three, be kind. So we're moving on. If you look again in 13.4, thirdly it says, does not envy. Love is never jealous. And we talked about two types of jealousy. And all jealousy is rottenness to the bones. That's what Proverbs tells us. Four, love is never boastful. It does not parade itself. And we saw the root meaning is bragging, shooting off the mouth of your accomplishments. And number five, love is not perfed up. That's the attitude. That's the pride attitude. It's the inner attitude, while being boastful is the outer attitude. Then we looked at verse five, and it said about not behaving rudely. Does not behave rudely. And rude people are self-centered. They're saying, I will do whatever I want, regardless of how anybody feels or regardless of what anybody else thinks. Number seven, we talked about uh, love does not seek its own. And we talked about how many people are living the cafeteria lifestyle, just me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. They're just myself, they're edification, they don't care about others. And love is not provoked. Number eight, meaning love does not get angry quickly. Love never gets upset. And then number nine, that's where we're going to be heading off today. 
And verse 5 says, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, it is not provoked, thinks no evil. Now, really, this thinks no evil is a Greek word, and it means it's an accountant term. It literally means to keep mathematical calculation. It meets a ledger of a bookkeeper. So I want to look at some other translations to make it easier to understand. If you look at uh, the New American Standard Bible, in 1 Corinthians 13.5, you see it says, instead of not thinks no evil, it says, does not take into account a wrong suffered. And then if you look at NIV version, it says, keeps no record of wrongs. And the reason you write things in a bookkeeper's ledger is why? So you don't forget them, right? In business practice, it's necessary, but in personal matters, not it's only unnecessary, but it's harmful. So keeping track of those things done against us is a sure way to unhappiness for you and the people you're keeping it against. So what I'm saying here, love, number nine, never keeps books of evil done to it. Love never keeps a running record of everybody's offense. The idea is holding somebody accountable for the some, some wrong, evil, or injury that's been done to you. Love forgives and forgets. And one theologian put it this way, and I like this. It says, love is a spark that falls into the sea and is quenched. When the injury falls upon a loving Christian, it is drowned just as surely. It is drowned in the sea of love. And folks, that same Greek word in the New Testament is used to present the pardoning act of God for those who trust in Jesus. God has not kept any books on our sin. So we are not to keep any books on others. If you look at Romans 4.8, it says, Blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Blessed is the man who the Lord does not impute sin. If you read it in the 1 Corinthians 13 language, it sounds something, Blessed is the man of whom the Lord keeps no record of evil. And people sometimes say, well, we're going to face God and we have to give an account, and I'm talking about Christians, for the evil things we're done. But there's nothing written. Hebrews 8.12 says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. The book in heaven, if you open it on Cornet Petrenko, you know what it says? And says things the same thing about you if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord. Righteous. Righteous. Because God no longer looks at you how we look at you. He looks at you through Jesus. And Jesus is righteous. The Lord does not do some mathematical calculation to add up our sins. He's not keeping an accounting of sin. That's the great truth. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.19. It says, the God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Do you see that? First he's reconciling, but then he's not imputing their trespasses against them. And if you look at Acts 3.19, it says, repent therefore and be converted, and then your sins may be blotted out. Romans 4.6 just as David describes the blessedness of a man whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So did you see that? Righteousness. 
Romans 4.22, and therefore it was counted for him for righteousness. Talks about Abraham, and same thing in James 2.23. It says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and was accounted him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. In other words, God only keeps account of righteousness, not evil. And to me, that's fantastic. God has no resentment. And look, God has been offended. Have you offended God as a Christian? Have you ever offended him? I have all the time. But you know something? He never starts a book and says, you know that corny Petarenko, I'm sure it's misspelled, I'm tired of that guy. I'm going to start keeping the ledger on him. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say he keeps no account. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. God so loved us that he doesn't keep account of our sin. He forgives us, keeps on forgiving, and keeps on forgiving, and keeps on forgiving. But resentment keeps the books. You know, unforgiven people usually have good memories, and some of them can hold a grudge for a lifetime. It's sort of like, you ever heard of these theologians, Larry, Curley, and Moe? There was a skit, and this guy was constantly coming up to Larry, and he's hitting him on the chest, and so he goes to Moe and says, I got an idea to stop this guy hitting from me. I'm going to strap on a dynamite to my chest, and when he's going to hit it, his arm is going to explode. And then, of course, he ends up hurting himself more than the guy that's hitting him. And that's what unforgiving does, folks. I mean, you may be sleeping, and while you're at night figuring out how to get somebody back, your teeth grinding and your fists clenching or whatever it is, those people are out there having a good time. They might not even know, unless you went and told them that they, you did something bad to them, they might not even know that you hurt them or they hurt you. Or maybe, and which is most common, they simply just don't care. Folks, love never makes memories out of evils. You know, and sad these days, even married couples, they keep track of things. One guy was sharing with his friend, and he said, every time my wife and I get into a fuss, she gets historical. He said, you mean hysterical? He's like, no, historical. She always brings up the things I've done wrong. Any of you do that in your marriage? Anybody say, just like your mother? Laugh, fast forgets. It sees past person's sins to their potential that the fact that God loves them. And you say, how many times should I forgive? How many times should we forgive? Well, same question Peter asked when Jesus, Jesus, how many times have we got to forgive? Peter said, Lord, how many times should I forgive this person? Seven times? Because seven is the perfect number, and that's what rabbis were teaching at the time. You know, you've forgiven seven times. On the eighth time, you can let them have it. But Jesus says this in Matthew 18, 21, 22. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall I, my brother, sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. He just wants to confirm what rabbis have been teaching. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So not only do you have to forgive more than seven times, you have to do the math now too. 
No, in other words, it means it's an infinite number. 70 times 7 is a perfect number. The Bible says we read, love keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't keep the books. It doesn't keep grudges. And folks, you may be totally innocent. You may have done nothing wrong to deserve it. They wronged you. But let me say, if you're holding grudges, if you're not just letting it go like Princess Elsa, let it go. God cannot work in you. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not about them. It's about you. And you're holding grudges. If you have resentment, God cannot work in your life. And Paul understood this. He even wrote to Timothy. There's one person who was getting on his nerves, affecting his ministry and getting in the way. And 2 Timothy 4.14 says, Alexander the Cuppersmith did so much harm to me. And then he says, I'm going to let him have him on the eighth time. No. He says, may the Lord repay him. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You see, Alexander got in the way of Paul's teachings, spreading false teachings, because he was probably making you know, little idols because he's a coppersmith. And he was, Paul was destroying his business. But Paul didn't say, I'm going to show him. He didn't have any resent. He just kept on doing what he's supposed to be doing and said, let the Lord repay him. Why did Paul say that? Because he knew what's said in the Old Testament. If you look at Deuteronomy 32, 35, it says, vengeance is mine. Hebrews 10, 30, for when we know who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to the wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. You see, life isn't fair but eternity is. Vengeance is mine. And do you remember I earlier mentioned the story of Saul, David, when I mentioned it earlier when we first started? In that same chapter, where he says, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed, he could have killed him and just became king, took over the kingdom. David was chosen king. He had every right. Now, Saul won't get out of the way, so why not? Slice him and dice him. But he could not live, lift his hand against the God's anointed. And look at verse, verses 12 and 13. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. And then verse 13, he says, as the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. Do you see that? David was the right king. He had every right. Saul won't get out of the way. Does he start a revolution? No, he says, you know what? God will avenge this. God knows what he's doing. He appointed me king. He knows what he's doing. I'm going to trust him. If he wants you removed in some other way, He'll remove it, but it won't be by my hand. It won't be by my hand. Because the Bible teaches the vengeance belongs to who? God. So why are you all, some of you are trying to figure, try to help God out? Huh? You think God can't handle it? Some of us are trying to help God out. It's not up to us to, but to vengeance, but it's up to us to allow the love of God and his grace to work in our hearts and leave the judgment to God. He 
He will take care of it here or eternity. But while we are here on this earth, this is what we are instructed to do. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiven one another. Why? As even as God in Christ forgave you. Next, Paul says, number 10, in verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity. Now, iniquity means simply unrighteousness. And the word talks about love never rejoices in sin. And, you know, I was preparing a sermon, and we can talk about a lot of ways of rejoicing in sins. There's so many different ways people would do that. And one of those things is we rejoice in sin sometimes as we sin, and we're thinking we're getting away with it. We're rejoicing in that, hey, I've sinned, but nobody saw. I can get away with it. The other way is the most common form of sin. So, you know, doing things is bad enough, but bragging about those sins and so forth, it's even worse. So to rejoice, rejoice in unrighteousness and in iniquity is you actually justifying it. So making it wrong appear to be right. And what does Isaiah say about that in Isaiah 5.20? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness of light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And we see this a lot. You ever go to a checkout at Myers or anything? You see all these magazines? It's just the wickedness that they're rejoicing. You turn on the commercials even these days. You know, they throw some kind of filth or wickedness. I mean, in the popcorn commercial, I don't know, or some medicine commercial. There'll be some kind of form of wickedness, and they're glorifying it. They're kind of rejoicing it. We're going to do what we want. So all this violence, crime, immorality, slander, they're all attractive to the carnal mind. So that's why we're seeing it more and more. And Christians are not immune for enjoying such things. At times we find them entertaining too. And because we feel so righteous, we end up sometimes doing them ourselves. One way to rejoice is not just in iniquity, brag about your sin. And certainly you say, well, what Christian will do brag about their sin? Well, Corinthians did. Remember we read in 1 Corinthians 5, first two verses, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Such sexual immorality is not even among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And then in verse 2 he says, and you're puffed up. Rather than mourn, rather than crying about it, they're parading it. How many sins go parading down our streets these days? that has done a deed that might be taken away from a government when you know. You may say, well, I'm not committing any sexual sins or anything like that. And one of the problems is we classify sin as one being big and the other one small. One of the most common sins that we all rejoice in is gossip. Gossip. Gossips are people who rejoice in iniquity. They love to tell you something. And folks, it's not an honor if somebody's sharing gossip with you, using your ears for garbage cans. Like a lady said, you know, I shared it with you before. Pastor, I don't say anything unless it's good, and this is good. Or maybe you heard about the three pastors that 
went on a fishing trip. They were all passing through different churches in the same area. And during this fishing trip, they began confessing to each other of all their sins and asking for each other to pray for each other so they can be lifted up. One of the pastors confessed that, you know, he said, my big sins is I drink. Sometimes I just get drunk. Not a whole times, but just one day a week or so, and I want you to pray for me. So they said, okay, we'll pray for you. The other pastor confessed that he raised some money for a missions trip to India, and he gambled it all away. So he doesn't know how he's going to tell that to his church, so he said, pray for me. And came to the third pastor. He said, well, my sin, my biggest sin is gossip, and I can't wait to get home to share your prayer requests. That's what we do, right? We call them prayer requests. Share them. Rejoice in iniquity. We rejoice telling things. We rejoice how somehow saying bad things about other people. You know, sometimes when you talk to those people and, and they kind of continue to like, oh, that's, that's too bad. Tell me some more. You know, they want to have more info. Tell me some more. Gossips. And gossips would do little harm, folks, if there wasn't so many years that were open to it. And that's the sin which many Christians treat lightly, but really it's wicked. May not be committing those big sins we classify, but really it's wicked. Exposing sins of others rather than helping them. And even, you know, even if it's true, gossip is still gossip. So a person is never helped by spreading the news of his sin. And, you know, sometimes silence is yellow, we ought to stand up regardless of the consequences, challenge evils of our time. Times we do not be a coward, pardon me for saying that. But there are times also where silence is golden. When we know this truth will hurt people. And again, the reason behind it is your motive. Why are you sharing it? To hurt them? Or are you trying to actually help them? You're sharing it with another person that may be able to help them. So what is your motive? You know? And how can we do those things? Because we can't rejoice in sin. Do you know why? I'll just give you two reasons. Number one, why would you rejoice in anything, if, even if it's your sin or somebody else's, if sin offends God? Sin offends God. So why would you rejoice in it? Psalm 69.9 says, Because zeal of your house has eaten me up, and the reapproaches of those who reapproach you have fallen on me. He meant, when you're, when you're dishonored, I'm in agony. I can't rejoice in sin that offends God. No way. And you look around the world today, society, all kinds of things does for entertainment, kinds of things tolerated in our society, we flatten it. How can you look at that? How can you look at that and rejoice? First, it offends God. You know, you have a loved one, a friend, and let's say they had some kind of tragedy. Would you rejoice in that? 
Well, why would you rejoice something that offends God? If we love God, what offends him will offend us, and what grieves him will grieve us. So there's no thought of rejoicing over evil. And the second, how can you rejoice in evil, or even if somebody stumbled and falled and sinned? When being a Christian, I know the consequence of sin. I know the consequence of sin. You know, sometimes people say there shouldn't be any church discipline, and because loving them is preventing any kind of church discipline. But that's not how Bible illustrates it. If you look at 2 Thessalonians 3.5, it says this, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into patience of Christ. That's a beautiful statement. It says the Lord directs your hearts into the love of God. So he says, I want you to be characterized by love. But then he moves on to verse 6 and says, but we command you, don't ask, not a suggestion. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which we received from us. And then he moves on to verse 14 and says, if anybody does not obey the words of this epistle, note that the person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. You find a believer that's living in sin or doing something, doesn't respond, does not repent, you put him out. You don't rejoice in sin. That's part of love of God coming into your life because love hates sin. And to purify the fellowship, to remove the sin so it doesn't contain the rest of the fellowship, you have to remove them. And when somebody comes along and says, don't think that's very loving, well, that is loving because love doesn't tolerate sin. Love does not rejoice in sin. Why? Offends God. And it brings punishment. There's chastisement. There's consequences of sin, even for the believer. We saw that in the life of David many times. Well, what does truth or uh, love rejoice in? If you look at verse 6 again in 1 Corinthians, it rejoices in truth. Now, sometimes people tell the truth. They tell it something that is true, but they tell it at the wrong time. They tell it at the wrong motive and in the wrong way, and it does not come across as love. So it's also very important, not only that we tell truth, but also how we tell it. I once read about two wealthy, ungodly brother, brothers who did anything to cover up their own sins. And part of the charade to make up for the sins, they gave a lot of money to the church. And unexpectedly, one of the brothers died. And just before the funeral service, the surviving brother comes with a large envelope to the pastor to pay off the entire church debt, but one caveat. During the funeral, he says his brother was a saint. Two ungodly brothers, but I'll pay off the whole church debt if you'd say that he was a saint. Pastor agreed. 
And he stood in front of that casket and said, Folks, this man is ungodly, wicked liar. He was unfaithful to his wife, cruel to his children. He was deceitful in business. He was a real hypocrite. And folks, he likely busted, held wide open. But compared to his brother, he's a saint. How do we tell the truth? Folks, at times, truth, many times, is not fun to share. It's not. Many times, the truth is very painful to share. Many times, it's a lot easier not to rock the boat, not to muddy the waters, not to face the dilemma, not to confront issues, but just go, as you always done, put it under the rug. But the Bible tells us you speak the truth, but speak it in love. Love rejoices with truth. Iniquity means unrighteousness. So, you know, I was looking at that verse. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in truth. Why not say rejoices in righteousness? Let me read another word for you, a verse for you. It's Second Thessalonians 2.12. It says that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, because it's clear Righteousness is predicated on what? Truth. You can't be righteous until you have behave yourself in accord with God's truth. Love is consistent with kindness, but it's consistent, not consistent with compromising the truth. It doesn't compromise the truth. Love can't rejoice in error. Love can't rejoice in false teaching. Love can't rejoice in false doctrine. And yet, I say people... Lots of churches and people today, you know, people can believe what they want and we'll just have to love them. You know, there's an ecumenical movement, which means simply all kinds of people getting together in the name of love and we just want to love everybody. doesn't matter what you believe. I talked to a Christian leader and he said, how can you compromise yourself with people who do not believe the Word of God, and the way we know it to be true. Well, you said, well, we're instructed in the Word of God to love them. But the answer is, love rejoices in what? Truth. And that is the basis on which it, love can work, is truth. And the best way to demonstrate that your stick is crooked, what do you do? You lay a straight stick next to it. And that's why, I've been telling you folks, doctrine is so important. Doctrine is important. How can you know if something's wrong if you don't know what the Scripture says? And that's what happens in the world. It's not the doctrine just like, hey, that sounds good. But really, it's does not align with the Word of God. Remember, the devil tempted Jesus. He used the Scripture, but he used it out of context. So, same thing for us. When somebody says X, Y, Z, you have to say A, B, C. But we don't do that. But you see, in 1 Peter 3.15, it tells us, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. And how can you have a defense if you don't know the original? 
So folks, I can't put my arms around people and love somebody who teaches things other than what the Bible teaches. I can't put my arms around and love somebody when he or she lives a life that does not behave itself according to the truth. Love will rejoice when truth is taught. Love will rejoice when truth is lived. I may love you, but I will not rejoice if you're teaching false doctrine. I may love you, but when you live in error, I will not rejoice. I will not. Here's what it says in 2 John 6. This is love. Again, right? Talking about love. This is love that we walk according to his commandments, and this is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in in it. Listen, love is not a feeling. We talked about that, right? It's not a feeling, some attitude, but obedience to the truth that you heard from the beginning. This is love, obedience, living the truth. Love isn't disregarding the truth. Love is saying, it, it, it is not saying uh, it doesn't matter what you believe. We're all just going to love each other. No, love walks after the commandments. Well, what's somebody a little bit off? You ever get people knocking at your door? Bring you some good news? Or at least they say so. Second John 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as the coming in flesh. This is the deceiver and antichrist. Many deceivers. In other words, they doubt incarnation for some reason. This is the deceiver antichrist. They doubt many Christians today. They're out there. They deny their virgin birth. That couldn't happen. Or those who doubt that Jesus died on the cross. You know, some people say, well, he didn't really die. He just fainted. So that's why he walked out of the grave. And they do this in love. They do this in love. So, you know, more people can follow Jesus, I guess. These people who transgress, transgress do not abide in true doctrine. Look what it says in verse 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring to this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. If they come to you without the doctrine, don't even receive him in your house. Don't bid them Godspeed before whoever bids them Godspeed participates in his evil deeds. So this is serious stuff. Serious stuff. Now, he's just talking about love. Love is no excuse for, you know, behavior or disregarding the truth. Love operates in the area of the commandments. Love responds toward to people who teach the truth. And that's why, again, in Ephesians 4.15, he says, speaking the truth in love. Not out of hate. We shouldn't do that. Not out of pressure. Not out of pride that we have the right doctrine, right? That's what the... The, the Corinthians were doing. They were so prideful because they had the right doctrine and so forth. They don't need Paul. They don't need Apollos. What are they going to tell them? Not out of motive to hurt somebody, but speak truth in love. And when you do that, you know what happens? People change faster. Truth without love is always resisted. So love rejoices in those who teach the truth and those who live the truth. Look at 2 John, same book, 2 John 4, uh, it says this, I rejoice greatly that I have some of your children walking in what? The truth. You see, he's rejoicing that those children are walking in the truth as we receive the commandment from the Father. And through, uh, 
3, John 3, it also says, For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. But love does not rejoice in untruth and false doctrine. And love does not rejoice. You know, a lot of people are just throwing Jesus' name around. Yeah, I'm a Christian. That word lost its meaning. That word lost its meaning in our day. Somebody says, yeah, I'm a Christian. It's like, that doesn't mean anything to me, unfortunately. Number 12 in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Paul says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So Paul made it clear that love rejects jealousy, bragging, arrogance, selfishness, anger, resentment, unrighteousness. So those things it does not bear, believe in, hope, or endures, all the false teachings or anything else that is not of God. By all things Paul is speaking here, all things that are acceptable in God's righteousness and will of everything within the Lord's divine tolerance. Basically, the word bearer means to cover, to support, to protect. Love bears by protecting others from exposure, ridicule, and harm. So genuine love does not gossip or listen to gossip. Love tries to correct what is in the least possible way to hurt the guilty person. That's what love means. It never protects sin, but it's not anxious to to protect the, it's anxious to protect the sinner. It doesn't, it doesn't support the sin, but it's trying to protect the sinner. Fallen human nature is just the opposite as we talked about that. There's pleasure in supposing, oh, this is good. But love doesn't do that. You know, Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred steers up strife, but love covers all sins. How we can measure our love for a person by how quickly we can cover up their faults. Cover, help them, does not dismiss. But have you ever noticed how easily you dismiss the faults of those you love? When one of your children does something wrong or we're putting on the best face, right? Oh, he didn't understand, or spouse, whatever. Just loved ones. He didn't understand what he was doing. She didn't really mean what she said. Everybody makes a mistake, right? But with the person we do not like, however, our reaction sometimes seems to be a little different, right? Oh, that's typical John. And sorry if your name is John, I'm just using that as an example. Yeah? Well, what else do you expect from her? Love does not justify sin or compromise, but love warns corrects, exhorts, rebukes, and disciplines. But love does not expose or brass cast uh, failures and wrongs. Love feels the pain of those it loves. It helps carry the burden of the hurt. And sometimes even willing to take the consequences of their sins of those it loves. And that's why in 1 Peter, Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 8, it says, above all things, have fervent love for one another. We talked about what fervent means. Have fervent love for one another. When you do, 
for the love will cover multiple of sins. In Colossians 3.13, we're bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. It's not a suggestion. You also must do. And then number 13, he moves on and says that love believes all things. Now, love is not suspicious or cynical. In verse 7, believe all things. Love always gives the person, what I say, a benefit of doubt. Most favorable possibility. Right? In Ecclesiastes 7.21, it says, also do not take to heart everything people say. Sometimes we get offended easily just because somebody said something. You know, so if somebody offended you and, you know, you ever go to a nursery and the person working the nursery is just like, here's your kid. They're like, how rude of them. Well, have you seen your kid? You know, so give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe somebody in ministry or somebody walked in the hallway. Sometimes it happens to me. I walk in the hallway because I know i got to catch somebody before church, and I don't, you know, my, I'm zoned out. I have tunnel vision. I'm walking, and they're like, oh, he walked by me, didn't even say hi. Give people benefit of the doubt. It happens. You know, we all know the story of Job and his friends, showed him no love. They showed him no love. They were ready to believe the, believe the worst things about him. Here's his friends. They saw his life, that he was a righteous person, and they're coming in not believing the best things about him, but the bad things about him. And they're pretty much saying that he was suffering so terribly, it has to be because of your sins. You're a sinner. And in Job 21, 27, he says, I know your thoughts and these schemes which you would wrong me. They gave Job no benefit of doubt because they, were, they had no true love. Knowing the uprightness of his righteous life, these loving friends, they should have realized, like, wait, love, this, you know, something's going on here, Job. Even if you did something, you could have done that, something bad. We know you. You shouldn't be suffering this much. You know, the, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. But they had no love. Same thing with the Pharisees. You know, they were walking around where Jesus was healing people. Did they rejoice when people got healed? No. If you look at Luke 5, 18 and verse 18 through 20, there's a story about a man who went through the roof. I'm sure you all know it, the paralyzed man. And then behold, a man brought into a bed who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find out how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up, up to the housetop and let down with his bed through the tilings into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, men, to the man, your sins are forgiven. So and then in verse 26, we find people are rejoicing. Look what they're saying. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear. Not scared fear, but righteous fear. This is, we have seen straight things today. This is amazing never seen this before. Rejoicing. But see the re reaction of those re religious leaders in verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began reasoning, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They didn't care. They, they didn't even give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. Hatred believes the worst. 
love believes the best. Love is harbor of trust. When that trust is also broken, our love is to be to heal, to restore. In Galatians, Paul writes and instructs us of this, if any man is overtaken in any transgressions, you are who are spiritual, restore such in one spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. I know there's some people that don't want to be restored, but from your side, you got to do everything possible. But true love believes, and then it says it hopes. You see, so when restoration is not possible at the time, where somebody doesn't want to get restored or something like that, there's still hope. Love hopes. Love hopes. When someone's repentance seems to be shattered, love still hopes. And when we run out of faith, we hang on to hope, don't we? And as long as God's grace is operative in Humor, you see, while we're alive, human failure is not always final. As long as there's breath, there's always hope. Would Jesus take Peter's final failure when he betrayed him three times? No. Paul wasn't going to take the failure of Corinthians. And there are more than enough promises in the Bible to make love hopeful. So, parents, if your children are backsliding, Continue to pray for them while they're still alive. Some people just get frustrated maybe with an unbelieving spouse and they seem to be getting worse. As long as they're breath, there's still hope. Continue to pray. There's still hope because love hopes. It doesn't give up. All hope and love that child or spouse or erring brother or sister will be saved and restored. Love never refuses to take failure as final. The rope of love has no end. You know, there was a story, actually, I read about a true story of a dog who stayed at the airport in a large city over five years. People that worked there kept feeding the dog. But the reason he stayed there, because that's where he saw his master last. And he was hoping that he would one day return. He never left. Five years. So if the dog's love for his master can produce that kind of hope, I hope our love can produce that kind of hope and restoration for the brothers and sisters or loved ones, especially when it comes to salvation. And then the last thing it says, it endures all things. Endures all things. Every hardship, every suffering was to be endured, and we have to hold fast. Love holds fast to those it loves and endures all things. Remember in the first sermon, the pattern of love, we read John 13, 1, when Jesus was washing their feet. And it says this, Now therefore the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour has come, he's about to go to death, he's under pressure, all these things going, he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. It says he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And like we said, there were a bunch of apostles were a bundle of mistakes, misunderstandings, failures, but he loved them to the end. He was enduring. And if love, when times are good and everything's good, any pagan can do that. Remember, we talked about that. Love endures. Remember Stephen? Stephen was witnessing. He was receiving all kinds of ridicule 
all kinds of accusations when he was uh, preaching the gospel. They were taunting him. But even the stones did not stop loving them. He was getting stones thrown at him. He was enduring that. And look what it says in Acts 7.60. Then he knelt down and cried out to a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said that, he fell asleep. Like his Lord, he loved them to the end. Loving the unloving enemies that put him to death. His love endured. Love bears what's unbearable. Love believes what may seem like it's unbelievable. And love hopes what seems to be something that's completely hopeless. And it endures. And after believes and hopes, it, it endures. And there's no after the endurance. Because endurance is the ending climax of love. Enduring. That's why it's important for us to understand and strive for this agape love in our life. It's so important because the fact that it brings spiritual wholeness to us and physical wholeness. And it's one of the most important characteristics a Christian could have because it was a characteristic of our Lord Jesus Christ and we are to manifest him. And he said, by this, the world will know you're my disciples. The agape love. So we looked at 15 of them, and we can continue talking about these 15 for kingdom come. But how do we compare? How do we compare? Each one should do it on his own. Now that we saw what it is, we saw what it does and how it behaves, how can we get that into our lives? How can we get into our lives? And I'm just going to give you five quick things. There are five key things to love it. Number one, we need to acknowledge that it's a command, not a suggestion. It's a command. It's not an option. In Romans 3, uh, 13, verses 8 through 10, it says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. And then in verse 9, he says, For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you shall not steal, you should not bear false witness, you should not covet. If there is any other commandment, they're all summed up in this same saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 10, love does, not, does no harm to the neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So we are commandment. Commanded, uh, commanded to love. Secondly, acknowledge that you already have the power. If you're a follower of Christ and you accepted him as your Lord and Savior, you have the power. Because in Romans 5, 5 says, now the hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. You have the power already. It's not only the command, but it's possible command because you have the power. And thirdly, acknowledge this should be the norm for your life. This is... Only norm. That's the bottom line. That's a Christian activity. In 1 John 4, uh, verses 7 through 10, it says, Beloved, let us not love one another, for God, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that the God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Do you see this? Love of God, we're living it through him, the Holy Spirit. 
And then in verse 10, it is the love, not that we loved God, but he has loved us and sent his son to be propitiation of our sins. This tells us that God is love, and so should we be in it. It's the norm. And fourthly, acknowledge it's spirit's work. We talked about men's breakfast a little bit about abiding in Christ. And the more you abide in Christ, the more you're allowing the Holy Spirit to work because it's fruit of the Spirit. It's not something you just wake up someday and just say, I'm going to love everybody. Not the agape love. I guarantee you that. It's the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Very first one. And then number five. Ready for this? This is brilliant. Practice it. Practice it. Don't just write it in your notebooks. Don't just highlight it in your Bible. Practice it. You're not going to be perfect, but this is where we should be striving for. Practice it. Start at your house. It's a perfect, beautiful place to start for all of us. Start at your house. These 15 characteristics. Put them on your refrigerator. You start getting into a fuss, just bust it out for your wife. Or love is patient, long-suffering. So you should be thankful for me, teaching you how to long-suffer, right? So how do we compare, now that we looked at these 15? So next Sunday, we're going to look through the verses 8 through 13, and we're going to talk about the permanence of love. Why does Paul say it is the greatest? Above hope, faith, and all those things, it's the greatest. So next Sunday, we'll talk about that, and that will be the end of the series. And then we got Easter. Invite a friend, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you again this morning for loving us.